Perhaps you've heard of CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program. Now in its 2.0 version, it's supposed to lay minimum cybersecurity standards on contractors doing business with the Defense Department, but it's like a storm on the horizon that never really arrives. Some company executives are skeptical. Among them, Matt Hodson, the Chief Information Officer for Vallejo Networks, who laid out his concerns to Federal Drive host Tom Temin. And Matt, I guess you're kind of Mr. Everyman in the world of federal contracting that is looking at CMMC and wondering what it's going to mean to your company? Yeah, as you know, CMMC version one, I mean, the whole point of it is to protect the data, right? And as we've seen with CMMC version two, you know, the government's trying to be a little more lenient with the contractors and give them some flexibility, but they're kind of missing the mark on the whole point of it, right? So we see under CMMC 2.0, right on the CMMC website, that it's supposed to simplify compliance, but by doing that, they're getting away from the actual goal of securing the data, is what we've seen. Right, so you think they've gone too lenient with 2.0. Correct, yeah, they're just kicking the can down the curb. We gotta secure the data. I mean, we're hearing now with everything with uh, critical infrastructure, we see things you know, with Russia attacking Ukraine, uh, and of course, different countries uh, attacking our critical infrastructure. If we don't take the time and get this done, it's just going to be a bigger problem down the line. Now, you're a technology company, a technology vendor, and there's a lot of those in the government, and presumably they have the expertise to follow all of the NIST controls, National Institute of Standards and Technology controls that are part of this, that those are in place. But what about all of the small vendors, the mom-and-pop vendors, the people that might be in manufacturing, services, supplies, that kind of thing, that simply don't have the expertise? It's costly and expensive for them. What should they do? What should be the approach for them? That's a great question, Tom. To your point, they're small, so they don't have a large budget. Even if they understand and see the value of securing their network or their infrastructure, they just don't have the budget. So it's good to partner with a MSSP and a third-party compliance company that works hand-in-hand. Because as an IT company, we can only put in place the technical controls of a certification right? So we have a third party that audits our work and certifies the company trying to get certified. And to that point, if you look back at what (laughs) the definition of certification is, it's a third independent body or company that's doing this testing, this inspection, the certification. So that's the other big challenge with CMMC 2.0, self-assessment. I mean, right? Okay, I'm certified. Well, that doesn't really make me feel warm and fuzzy. (laughs) Right. But wasn't there supposed to be a cadre developed nationwide of people that could fan out, do these certifications, the companies would pay them and everyone would be set to go? We haven't really seen that materialize yet then, have we? Correct. We have not. And with 2.0, if you're going for level one or two, you can self-assess, which again, it's, you know, no one's checking your work. Right. So you would suggest then changing the program how? First of all, I would recommend not having self-assessments. If the whole point of the certification is to protect the data, whatever levels you put in place, the government decides on three levels, five levels, there should be a third party auditing entity to verify what you say is so before you get the certification. And I understand why they're doing it, but to allow them to bid on contracts and win contracts and not even have the certification yet, how is that different from today? We're speaking with Matt Hodson. He's the CIO of Vallejo Networks. And just for a company to, say, get the basic NIST controls in for level two, say, I mean, there's a lot to do there. And then to get certification by a third party that those are in place, what could that cost? Are we talking thousands, tens of thousands? What's the order of magnitude 
of dollars for a company? As you know, there's a lot of variables in that question, right? The size of the company and the complexity and whatnot. But you can easily spend for a small, medium-sized business anywhere from ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollars. It just depends, you know. One, the current operational maturity level of that company. What controls do they already have in place, right? So there's always that first initial assessment, that gap assessment to see where they're at and where they need to be. And usually that second project is, you know, making sure they meet those requirements. And that's like you said, just the NIST requirements. But then you have to pay that third-party auditing company to go in and double-check the work that a technical company like ourselves have completed on your behalf. Right, sure. And then there is the ongoing maintenance of that because software changes, controls change, operating systems change. And so what was secure one day, you know, that's why they have Patch Tuesday. It could be great on Monday. By Tuesday, you're out of date and there's vulnerabilities. So it's an ongoing cost, right? Yes, it is. And that's, that's the value prop of companies like ours is you pay us that fee where we help you maintain that ongoing compliancy because versus trying to bring it in-house. The Defense Department would need that assurance that we certified you six months ago. Now the contract comes and, you know, are you still safe? Is our data still safe with you? Sure. Yeah, usually with the compliancy is once you achieve it, you know, it, it stands until it needs to be reviewed again, which is usually annually. So in that scenario, they would most likely win that contract. And then in six months when it's time to be reviewed again, they would check everything. And there's plenty of hacking, there's plenty of phishing that takes place, there's plenty of ransomware attacks. But when you look at the really, really big, horrible breaches, like what's been going on with the Defense Department over the last couple of weeks, it's not cybersecurity measures or technical controls at all. It's bad actors that should know better. Correct. So the what they call an automotive field, the nut behind the wheel, the employee, that seems like something that CMMC could never get at, either the deliberate or inadvertent misconfiguration or misuse of data. There's no control for that. No, that's true. And like we said, if if we didn't have employees, we wouldn't ever be attacked, right? (laughs) Because that's uh, the low hanging fruit. So, you know, you've got these nation states that are trying to infiltrate, you know, our infrastructure. And to your point, that's the easiest thing is going after and phishing the employees, which just happened to us yesterday. Supposedly our CEO sent several of our employees text messages and it was customized to each employee with their first name, and it had a sense of urgency, I need to join this meeting. And so they are always trying different approaches to see where they can get somebody to click something, to give them access, where they could, you know, get into the system, get the lay of the land, and they use the same tool sets that we use to manage the infrastructure. So it's hard to identify when they're in the network sometimes. Did anybody join the meeting? No, thank goodness. (laughs) Everyone was sharp enough to ask, this doesn't look correct. So we all kind of talked about it and, and, you know, nobody clicked on anything, but well, we're IT company. So, you know, we do our best to educate our employees, but even more so for companies that are in this industry, it's something that as you bring out, it should be probably part of this is that training, not just the technical controls, but training of the employees. All right. And as someone who follows CMMC closely, and I presume you are also a federal contractor yourself, what signals are you getting that this program is going to become widespread 1.0 or 2.0 regardless? I mean, it has to. We got to do something, right? I mean, every link in the supply chain has to be secure. Do you get the sense from the Pentagon that this is moving along towards implementation? Um, Yes, but not fast enough. And as you know, hackers work at a insanely fast pace and now they've got ai working for them and so the longer we kick this can down the curb it's going to be a bigger problem so it's just not happening fast enough i mean what is this the third year 
since this certification has been, you know, made available, but there's still no actual certification, you know, contractors come to us, Hey, we want to get CMMC certified. It's like, great, we, we can help you up to a point, but it's still not solidified as a certification yet. So there's really nothing to achieve yet. And it's been three years. Matt Hodson is CIO of Vallejo Networks. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, 
influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State. It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was, but my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness 
toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you gotta understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You wanna think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kinda brilliant. see all of that, you that's know? <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.